0: No more to sub, go ato, arahatua, some ma, some put us ah. A couple of days ago, Ajahnabhinandu and I returned from our annual gathering at Amarawati. For many years now, we have met, usually in April, uh, to, we call it the Terrors Meeting. Uh, That is, if you've been a monk or a nun, for that matter, for 10 or more years, you're called a terror. And um, not... Terrorizing the rest of the community, hopefully, but more like you know you're in some sort of position of influence in the community, and so it's thought to be a good idea to get together and just check in with each other and The evidence is that it is a good idea and um, so there's a terrorist meeting there's also what we call the elders council, which is that's more like the cabinet meeting where the decisions get made um, and that's also uh, an important meeting that happens twice a year. Some of you will have seen, in fact, when that meeting takes place here at Harnam, sometimes uh, around Katina time. So those two meetings happened at Damarawati, uh, the Teres meeting and the Elders meeting, and each one was two days, and the nuns, the Therese, I believe they also had their meeting for two days, although I think actually theirs was more like all the nuns together. Um, and I'm happy to report that it was all very harmonious, and... It's not always been that way. Um, you've possibly, most of you, I think, have been around long enough to know that we're human beings. Despite what we look like, <clears throat> we are basically just average human beings, and and so we have strong views and opinions on things. It's not difficult to find uh, disagreements. So, in fact, it seems to be the easiest thing in the world to disagree with. What's going on? Things shouldn't be this way. And equanimity is a a hard won virtue. Uh, it's, uh, those of you that have studied the classical Buddhist teachings will know that equanimity e- upacara comes right at the end of the seven factors of enlightenment. Equanimity is right at the end. The ten parami equanimity is right at the end. Equanimity doesn't come easily. So, and it uh, is preceded by a generally a lot of hard work. So most of us, I would say, probably all of us, are still at the hard work stage. But the, the evidence of the benefit uh, is there to see. And uh, some of us, um, the monks and nuns, we've been together for over 30 years. And and I feel um, quietly proud of the degree of concord that can be felt and can be witnessed and... and after four days of talking, not many people like meetings. you sit around and and listen to other people and go through the agenda and have to put up with these people who don 't seem to appreciate why my view is the right one and so and, uh, it takes a lot of patience and a lot of skill i would say and and so uh, yes i'm 'm happy to share with you that that the community does seem to have adequate skill to be able to meet some of the difficult questions. And it's, um, our monasteries, is some of you have been around since the very beginning, uh, <clears throat> will have seen what goes on, what's involved in building monasteries, starting new monasteries. There's a new monastery just starting now in Portugal, and possibly a new one starting in Boston, and and uh, the issues around starting a new monastery, getting the, the constitution of the charity, the... the Committee set up properly, and and naivety and idealism get in the way of sometimes being practical and realistic. And we have to listen to each other, and 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 then there's questions, uh, of course, between uh, the big monasteries and the small monasteries. And then there's questions about what to do with old monks and old nuns. Do we have to follow the Christian tradition, or do we follow the Thai tradition? And well, actually, we're all very different, and. And there are those in the community who have very strong feelings for the way things are done in Asia. Well, there are those in the community also who have very, very little affinity for the way things are done in Asia. They started their monastic training in this culture and they have an enthusiastic interest in integrating into the the ways of the West. And and yet, uh, this is what we've got. We've got an element of the East and an element of the West. And how do you bring these two together and the potential for disagreement is considerable because we all know that religious beliefs stir up the passions. Well, it's not the beliefs, of course, it's the attachment, isn't it? It's the attachment to our beliefs and and that's the hard work where <clears throat> the Buddha himself, 2,600 and something years ago, pointed out that... Uh, Monks, they fall out with each other over views. Householders, they fall out with each other over all sorts of other things, but what monks fall out with each other over is views. They, they attach to their views and opinions and end up having arguments. And, and so it seems to be the easiest thing in the world to do, and so I feel very heartened um, to... Uh, although it was, it was, you know, solid work sitting there for four days, talking uh, and listening, but still to witness the... The capacity of the community to meet and concord despite the diversity. Now, there is a difference of views on many things, but still there is a willingness to there's a willingness to bring the practice into the relational realm. So very easy to 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 make the spiritual life something special, we do on special occasions in special places. In other words, it's been my observation and many others as well, I'm sure, that there's a risk in spiritual practice to escape. Indeed, we are often uh, accused of escaping and people assume that because you go and live in a monastery that everything's very convenient and easy and you don't have any difficulties. Well, uh, those of the community who've been down there digging up the sewerage today and trying to identify where the, the leak in the system is can can attest to the fact that there are sometimes very difficult issues that have to be dealt with in the monastery as well. And sometimes it's dealing with the the water system, or sometimes, more often than not, it's actually dealing with relationships, human relationships. And it's, it's very easy to somehow get the view that the real practice is when you are being peaceful... And that's what we do when we're on our cushion. Well, that's what we try to do when we're on our cushion with varying degrees of success. And yet, if we do do that, then it's been my observation that that when what's called for is the ability to bring mindfulness, bring awareness into a conflict situation where people don't want to listen to each other, don't want to take the time that it takes to arrive at a consensus decision, All major decisions in the monastic community are based on consensus. There are some decisions which, if consensus can't be reached, then there can be a democratic vote, but that's more or less seen as a failure. Really, all decisions should be based on consensus. But to reach consensus, my goodness, it takes time. It takes time and a feeling awareness for, are we there yet? Does everybody feel heard? And... To bring mindfulness, to bring awareness into that territory, it's, it's quite different. It's distinctly different from what you're doing when you sit on your cushion and returning the light of awareness inwards and making our inner investigation. But, as I was saying, I feel, the, I feel very confident that we do in our community have sufficient emphasis and skill in this ability and it's, it's wonderful to see that, that people are not shying away from <clears throat> conflict not shying away from pain. It's the, it's the natural instinct when there's pain to withdraw and pull away from it. But we have this ability, we have this intelligence to be able to investigate, to ask questions, what is the relationship i are having with this pain? You know, like any physical pain we have, we can just withdraw from it, we can take a pill, we can numb it, we can, we can ignore it. Is that really the most intelligent relationship to pain? Almost certainly not. You know, pain is a message that's saying, pay attention here. There's something that needs attention. And as with the body, so in the community dimension, when there's conflict, when there's pain, disagreement, then the perhaps the instinctual reaction might be to withdraw, to avoid. But if that's all we do, well then problems tend to build up, as with the body. If we keep avoiding, ignoring pain of the body, the next thing we could end up with a, a, a serious situation to deal with. And so to be willing, to be willing, despite the difficulties and the frustrations and the tediousness of it all, but to be willing to bring our practice into everyday life, I think is, uh, is, is terribly important. One of the areas that was discussed was uh, publications. It's, uh, it's a big thing these days. Uh, with now, when, when I was a junior monk, if you wrote a letter, you were lucky. You, you get maybe get one, given one aerogram or something, and you can write a letter to your relative. But there was very little correspondence. And those are all well, these days, of course. You know, people are writing emails and blogging and, and publishing and... You can, you can use print-on-demand to get yourself published very easily. And, well, there's consequences to that. If you're part of a community and you're publishing stuff, well, what you put out there actually reflects on the community. So how are we going to, how are we going to deal with that? Well, we could just say, oh, I don't want to know about it. <laughs> blogs, what are blogs anyway? I mean, uh, some of the senior monks have only just found out what blogs are. It wasn't that long ago they found out what the internet was. Uh, it's, it's living in monasteries you can if you wish choose to not know what's going on out there and but there's a lot going on and when the junior monks and nuns uh, have got uh, facebook accounts and and writing blogs and whatever well there's consequences and so yes the senior monks do need to open up and listen to what's going on and then um, engage it and uh, you yeah, deal with the consequences and even though it's sometimes difficult. I myself came under a little criticism at one stage because, uh, I, uh, as you probably know, some of you will know anyway, I put this uh, Forest calendar out each year and been doing it for, I don't know, however many years now. And last year I decided to print a whole lot of photographs of, of monks working. And of you saw, the monks on the concrete mixer there and on the roof doing the root tiling and, and uh, whatever else they were doing. I forget now, but um, apparently some people didn't like this. Some people didn't like... They like to see monks with their robes on being spiritual, or what they think is spiritual. And so I listened to the criticism and... Um, OK, but actually I'm still going to print pictures of monks and nuns working because I, I am, uh, I'm not persuaded that that is the spiritual life, sitting there on your cushion with your nice robes on. It's certainly not uh, what Ajahn Chah uh, instructed us. In fact, when he built his temple, he, uh, he had a, a Buddha image, a standing Buddha image, and he specifically said at the time that uh, I want my Buddha image standing because my monks meditate while they're working. And... Uh, and it is his temple is, and his Buddha image is radically different from from most in Thailand, but I think this is an important aspect of his teaching and I would um, I would say um, it is my view that one of the reasons why Ajahn shah 's teachings has has seemed to make sense to a lot of people and, and perhaps I could be as bold as to suggest that one of the reasons why there are now a good number of, of monasteries very well established all around the world uh, in his tradition, is, I would say, because of this emphasis that he did not support the idea that being spiritual was what you did when you closed your eyes and sat on your cushion and had an interesting experience. As far as he was concerned, all experiences are the same. All experiences arise and cease. That's, that's it. All experiences have got the same flavour. All experiences are just so... But what was important from his perspective was in what are experiences arising and ceasing? Mm. Not to get overly interested even in the special experiences, the spiritual experiences, the peaceful experiences, the beautiful experiences, the intense experiences, the weird experiences. Not to get overly interested and not to give too much value to any experience, in fact. But to be able to let go of all experiences and to pull back and abide as the knowing of all experiences. And to the degree that one's able to do that, well then, as far as he was concerned, to that degree one's not going to suffer. All suffering is a direct result of our misperceiving the nature of experience and relating to it in a way that means we grasp it. So this pushing and pulling on experience, whether we like it or dislike it, interferes with life and creates stress and imbalance. So his experience was if we can inhibit this pushing and pulling and and be able to see the nature of all experience and abide as that which knows all experience, then there's not going to be suffering. But that doesn't mean to say that you don't do anything. He wasn't promoting just not doing anything. He he often used to tease the monks who were obsessed with doing lots of sitting. He says, there's lots of chickens around here who do a lot of sitting and they don't seem very clever to me. They don't get very enlightened. Sitting itself is not going to make you enlightened. And he would use the image of soldiers on parade. He says, you don't tell a soldier by what he's like on the parade ground, but what he's like when he's in battle. Of course, he wasn't promoting military, but he was giving an image. And a Similarly for, for monks, he says, you can't tell a monk whether he's any good by sitting on his cushion, but you see what he's like on a festival day when there's loads of food and, and lovely ladies around. When there's lots of sense objects, then you can tell whether the monk has actually settled or not. And so the real practice, as far as he was concerned, in fact, I was looking for a, uh, an old analogue tape that I believe I have somewhere. One of the very last recordings that he made, he was living in um, a monastery called Wat Pet, the Temple of the Cave of Diamond Light, where somebody happened to turn up with a tape recorder and, and he very kindly sent a, a lovely message to us all over here, but after the formal message was finished, the tape recorder was left running, and he was just chatting away, questioning and answering with the people there. And and he then he gets very animated and very energised, and he's talking about practice. He says practice. He says he says practice is not sitting on your cushion. He says practice the, and if I remember, the expression he used, he says เมื่ออารมณ์ขับใจ which means at the moment that the passions impact the heart, that's the point of practice. All the rest of the stuff we're doing is preparing ourselves for that. Can we be present at the moment when the passions flare up and our usual response is to lose our centre, lose our ground and become impassioned, become partial, become lost in the mood and defined by the activity or are we able to expand and receive and accommodate the energy of the situation feel the intensity of it but not be defined by it Mm -hmm. that's the great question and so when people have this idea of the real practice is getting peaceful and sitting on your cushion and not having any disturbances he spoke out against that big time and I think he's managed to impart a culture to our community that carries that message. And I would say that that, that is one of the causes for this teaching actually taking root. Yeah, this is a very different culture from Asia. We're not here just because we believe in lighting incense and, and various other activities that traditional Buddhism might be characterized by. We're in this because there's something, there's a message that we recognize and that is i would say is that that daily life is the context of spiritual practice not some rarefied special environment that we have to go off to now specialized rarefied environments lovely places like this where we all feel safe and and quiet and and we're not uh, feeling threatened or disturbed by excessive sensory input is important but the encouragement is Uh, yes, don't get attached to it. Appreciate it, but don't get attached to it. Just um, yesterday, I think it was, or maybe the day before, I was having a conversation with a good friend. Some of you might remember Mark Piano, who who was coming here for some time, and now these days he's off in Burma. And um, probably you're all aware of the intensity of the degree of transformation that's taking taking place in that country. And... He's very engaged and very active and, and very busy with the things that he's doing there and hopefully being helpful. But uh, he was talking about going off to do a month retreat. There are lots of retreat centres in, um, in Burma. But we were discussing that, you know the retreat is important, the retreat situation is important, but not to mistake the retreat situation as being the real practice. And the image that Mark came up with, he says, "I see it. he says it's like charging your mobile phone. you, know, you put your phone on a charger, but while your phone is on a charger, you know, you're not generally making calls or inputting data. You're charging the battery. And, and so it is when we're sitting on our cushion or, or going on retreat. It is definitely part of practice. But to understand, to appreciate it for, for what it is, it's like charging up our spiritual faculties. Yeah. It is good to put aside some of the excessive activity and distractions of daily life and to simplify our life down to where we can just be with this moment. Training the body to be... Upright and open, attention, slowing down, present, here and now, awareness, identifying the compulsive judging mind, trying to free attention from that. Making this kind of effort is very important. But if we we then make the mistake that this is the real practice, well then we're not going to be able to carry that into other situations that we do need to meet. Like, for instance, talking with other people, dealing with the broken sewerage. Yeah. I have been in monasteries where, where monks uh, just don't want to have anything to do with the building work. Uh, they don't want to be involved. And so, well, who's going to do it? I mean, you don't have any money, so who do you think is going to do it? And so it is quite suitable as far as Sajin Cha was concerned, as far as we're concerned, that we learn to be able to do these things. So using our contemplation, using our discernment to be able to recognise perhaps where our practice is going out of balance, where we get overly idealistic. Sometimes it's, uh, you can meet a particular monk or a nun or some teacher that is very inspiring and, and he's oh, I'd like to be just like them. And they seem so peaceful and, and so gentle and sometimes we have these lovely lovely Asian monks come here and they're not like Ajahnabi and me kind of speed freaks running around doing stuff, can't stop talking and mobile phones and whatever else that we're into. And they're all gentle and peaceful and loving and, and of course you know, they look different from us so they must be wise and And, and I have seen this happen and we, in fact we had, uh, <laughs> well a good friend of mine, Vinwajin Yanarato was here recently, very peaceful very gentle Japanese monk very humble and very modest and but uh, what's interesting, if you listen to Ajinyan Arato talk about his years of training, in fact I was listening to him the last few days, and I think he was talking about how when he was a junior monk, what he used to do was in the morning after dawn he'd be sent out to the fields by his teacher with a, a, a plastic lunchbox, you know, with his, I don't know, some cold rice in it and a bit of curry, sent out to the fields with the tractors to go and plant trees all day long you know, to watch the workers, and he'd be out there all day long, and he'd come back in the evening, he said, sometimes he'd come back in the evening, and he hasn't even had time to take a shower on the edge, and he said, would you lead the chanting? You know, so he doesn't even have time to do it, have a shower before he's asked to lead the chanting. And, yeah, this was Ajahnaratta's practice, and, or similarly, practice at Wapapong, sometimes people, Ajahn Chah, oh, it must be so wonderful to live with Ajahn And Well, my memory of living with Ajahn Cha is that when he wanted a temple, he decided he wanted to build a hill first to put the temple on. And so we had to build the hill. And so what he did was build a huge, I don't know what, I don't know, 12-foot-high concrete wall. And then the, 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 the tractors would dig all the soil from outside and bring it in and dump it. And then our job was actually to move all this soil and throw it over the wall. And, in fact, what started... what well, used to be was the nuns who were outside throwing the soil over the wall and then we were inside the wall pounding it down and we'd have these cane baskets throwing them one to the other all day long. All day long we'd throw these and then pounding them and and then when we'd swap and the nuns would go inside we'd be outside. And and this would happen from like 9 o'clock in the morning until about 11 o'clock at night, sometimes 1 o'clock in the morning and then... Next morning you get up and you do the same thing again. Next morning you get up and do the same thing again. And one meal a day and maybe you'd have a cup of cold, overly sweet coffee in the evening. Um, Well, I confess that actually sometimes the Western monks, we had a little private stash of something that we would run off to and, and prop ourselves up with. But generally speaking, it was still a seriously hard slog. And yet, as far as Ajahn Chao is concerned, this is practice. Don't even entertain the idea that I've got to go and get my practice together, I've got to go and meditate. I'm reminded also of uh, a, a teaching image that uh, my very dear friend, the late venerable Miyokioni, used to present, which was that uh, she said, just as we walk on two legs... One leg forward, then the other leg forward. She says, likewise with our practice. Formal practice and daily life practice. Formal practice and daily life practice. And sometimes she'd get one of her monks to stand up and say, show us what it's like when you walk on one leg. <laughs> and of course, what happens, you fall flat on your face. And, and the image is um, very relevant because... If we practice merely according to our preferences, which is we discover these wonderful, powerful teachings and we sit and we make our mind a little bit peaceful and so we say, I want more of it. Well, that's just what we do with ice cream, isn't it? Or pumpkin pie or cheesecake or whatever it is that you fancy. You know, I want more of it. But how beautiful is that? And then that's not, we know that's not the way. We've learnt that, but with our spiritual life, we, you know, sometimes it takes a while before we catch up. That's not the way. Yes, we do formal practice. Yes, we make the effort to hone down the spiritual faculties. But then the next move is: how do we bring that into our daily life? How do we answer the telephone with politeness? You know, we, it's very easy when the phone rings to speak. Yep well, that's not what the other person needs to hear, particularly if you're in a monastery. You, know, you don't want somebody answering the phone. Yep, you, you, you answer the phone and you slow down here and now, feel your feet on the ground, take a breath, and you answer the phone with politeness, with presence, give your attention. Or sending emails. You know, somebody writes to you, you just type something back, the next thing you know you created some serious misunderstanding that could have been avoided If we had brought our practice into the situation and and felt our whole body-mind here and now, judgment-free awareness, what's called for in this moment? Pause. Expand awareness. Accommodate the whole situation. Let empathy manifest. Felt empathy, not conceptual. Trying to imagine what the other person wants me to say. And if our email response comes from that place, I'm sure it's going to be more rewarding. So I think it's useful um, um, to stop and, and check where our practice is to see if we, we have got this going forward on one leg, then on the other leg, daily life practice and, and formal practice and balance and honouring our Eastern heritage Recognizing that, respecting that, but also recognizing the situation we're in and, and being sensitive and aware to time and place and how to move forward in this circumstance. And sometimes being willing to just patiently hold the absolute, utter, the frustrating, not knowing what to do. You yeah. know, we, we went through, there was a period for quite a while there, somebody was raising a question about modes of address. Do you call do you refer to a monk or a nun as Ajahn at this point, or do you call them sister or venerable or Bhante or the, <laughs> Lumpur? What are you supposed to call them? When are you supposed to call them? And, 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 and there can be the, the impulse that say, well, I want to know the right thing to do. You say, well, you know, sometimes you know, the, you know, things are just not clear. And likewise, if our practice is here and now embodied, judgment-free awareness, well, hopefully there's the intuition that says, well, actually, we can't demand clarity right now without throwing things out of balance. The time to act or the time to wait. Mm -hmm. And the presence, the presence of mind, of heart, the presence, the awareness to see where we are falling into our habits of creating a problem out of life when we don't have to. Life hurts, there's no doubt about that. (coughs) Disappointment hurts, the body hurts, memories can hurt, thoughts of the future can hurt, do we have to default to immediately withdrawing and trying to ignore or get rid of that hurt? Or can we bring our well-prepared, gentle, sensitive, patient awareness to the experience of hurt and wait for it to teach us? I trust that's, what, that's the, at the very core of this, at the very core of the Buddhist teaching. You know, the basic Buddhist teaching... Four Noble Truths, there is this experience of hurt. We make a big problem out of it because of our grasping. Third Noble Truth, we don't have to. Fourth Noble Truth, there is a way. And so if in our daily life practice we don't move too far away from this, then I trust that our practice is not going to go too far out of, out of balance. So thank you very much this evening for your... Hannya maya, dhamma vadaka dasa dukkara, galama se.